Welcome to the Shack 15 Conversations podcast, where we invite founders, innovators, and changemakers to share ideas with the community, speak to the experience of building their businesses, and unlock some of the hard-earned wisdom collected along the way. On February 15, Shack 15 hosted a panel conversation about the current state of innovation, legalization, history, and opportunity of the burgeoning psychedelic field. The ongoing process toward legalization of psychedelic-assisted therapies in the United States is arguably one of the most important scientific and societal revolutions of our generation. The panel included Izzy Laredo Ali, Director of Policy and Advocacy at the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies, or MAPS, Rebecca Lee, Chief Legal Officer and Acting COO at Journey Colab, and James Klein, co-founder and CEO of Mimosa Therapeutics. The conversation was moderated by Neil Gahani, founder of Mind Lumen. Neil set the tone for this important dialogue in service of spreading awareness, inviting participation, and supporting progress within this expanding field. Here's Rebecca Lee from Journey Colab. Very excited about plant medicines and psychedelics specifically and their potential to, to change the world. Um, and it's an area that's particularly near and dear to my heart because I have a lot of family members who have struggled with mental health, health disorders, mental illness, and have not been well served by the current medical model or by the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, we, we lost my uncle to suicide when I was 10, um, and I have other family members that have really struggled as well. So I'm really excited about the uh, transformative potential of psychedelic medicine um, to really make a difference in the lives of patients who really need this healing. Hi everyone, my name is Ismail Lourido Ali. I also go by Izzy. There's a lot of stories I could tell for how I ended up here, but I'll say kind of the most simple arc was really kind of like you shared, Rebecca, through the reality of both witnessing what was going on with the war on drugs and also the sheer need uh, for mental health kind of treatments and care modalities that were just significantly missing and significantly lacking in kind of like the Western mental health paradigm. Um, I grew up in Fresno, California. I'm the first generation child of two immigrants who landed here in 1986 in California. Um, and was really affected by the post 9-11, post-Patriot Act, Guantanamo Bay era as a young Muslim person growing up and really witnessing the shift in both domestic and foreign policy over the course of the early 2000s. That led to a lot of angst, a lot of depression, a lot of confusion, a lot of dissociation. And in my own experience, kind of contacted what people now recognize as underground drug culture while I was a teenager. And spent a number of years participating in that world, uh, being introduced to the kind of sacred approach to plant medicine on pilgrimages in my early 20s. And like Rebecca, also ended up in law school, focusing also on justice, whatever that kind of amorphous thought meant. Um, it was while I was in law school that I realized, while I was at the time focused on surveillance, on civil liberties, on the issues that kind of came out of the post 9-11 era, I ended up pivoting around 2015 into drug policy. For those of you that are around at the time, you might remember that 2015, 2016 was a big shift also in cannabis policy because it was the time that we were leading up to passing Prop 64 in California. I wanted nothing to do with the new cannabis uh, industry that was being created and I felt like I needed to do something a little bit different and thankfully was presented with the opportunity to meet the folks at the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies in about fall 2015, early 2016 and just kind of like hopped over cannabis into psychedelics right at the time that the organization needed to build out a policy department. So today I work as the Director of Policy and Advocacy at MAPS. Um, in addition to working with a few different boards, I'm the founder, uh, one of the founders of the Psychedelic Bar Association and I work with a nonprofit on the East Bay called Sage Institute, uh, which works to do kind of nonprofit psychedelic healthcare, usually primarily using ketamine at this time. So I do a little bit of a lot of different things. I worked with Students for Sensible Drug Policy. I worked with Bielabate over here in Chacruna for a while, um, still do, and um, feel really grateful to be kind of having this conversation in this space and kind of participating in a few different ways. So I'll share more, but I'll pause there for now. Hey, I'm uh, Jim Keim. I'm 
the CEO of Mimosa Therapeutics. Uh, this is Mimosa's my third time up as a startup CEO, but I'm actually a clinician. I was first trained 30 years ago with a focus on trauma therapy, and for 20 years I've been a psychedelic therapist as well. I've um, also taught trauma work internationally and as a Fulbright specialist, and I had a focus on treating victims of human trafficking. Uh, and I'm co-author of the book, The Violence of Men. And I think, you know, in terms of what brought me here, a lot of it has to do with the stress of being a trauma therapist and not having good treatments for people. Challenge does not compare to the pain that our, our clients experience, but I have to tell you, it's really hard hearing people's pain and not being able to do something about it. And psychedelics have just been amazing as a tool, and I've been just honored to witness the change that they can bring to people who in so many ways have been failed by traditional psychiatric drugs and by traditional therapy practices. Thank you, thank you all. Um, I'm, I'm your moderator and, and I'll share how I came to this space. Um, I discovered psychedelics um, 2017, I think, at the Symbiosis Music Festival. I actually didn't even know what it was at the time that somebody gave me. I trusted my friends and and I had a wonderful time. Stayed up till five o'clock in the morning, watched the sun come up. And then later on, I figured what was this This sort of cracked a door um, in my mind. And I wanted to learn more. And that's when I started reading and, and learning about it. And that's when I came across Michael Pollan's book. I was in Colombia, almost ended up in an ayahuasca ceremony, but I didn't. Um, and then, you know, I realized that I needed to go into therapy because I was suffering from my own trauma when I was a kid, and, um, and it was the first time I went into therapy. Um, and then my mom passed in, in, in 2020. My sister suffers from depression. Uh, I can't reach her for six months at a time sometimes. And I did my first journey in October in 2020, and then I did my uh, last journey in, in, in June of, of 2021, and the doors fucking blew open for me like I've never, never imagined. Uh, that's when I woke up and I, I basically said that the world needs to know about these medicines and that's how Mind Lumen was born. I met my, my co-founder, Kwasi, who's a psychiatric nurse, and, and we decided to start this, start this journey together. There are two big trends at play here. Uh, both of them are gray areas. You know, obviously, we are in the psychedelic space, and it's moving much, much faster than I thought. Um, even faster than cannabis, it feels like the genie's out of the bottle, and the second gray area is sort of the crypto space, and we just happen to marry those two together, and that's what MindLumen is, is basically combining crypto and psychedelics together. Um, we also wanted to think differently about the kind of economic systems we wanted to build because a typical extractive model wasn't going to work. And so we decided to focus on how to build a regenerative model. And, and now we have the tools like crypto that we can use to actually create a different types of organizations, different types of financial incentives, different types of structures. And those are the things that we are, we are trying to implement uh, with MindLumen. Uh, the recent WHO report that I read, there's about 450 million people suffering from mental health disorders, and some reports you know, point to close to a billion. Um, you know, for a, a recent Centers for Disease Control estimates that between 2015 and 2018, 13.2% of adults used antidepressants. In 2021, a, a a study of depression in the US, there are 8.9 million adults being treated for major depressive disorder. 2.8 million, or 30.9% are treatment resistant. The annual burden of medication treated in major depression among the country's population is estimated to be about 92.7 billion. You know, with, now I, I've read different reports that puts the psychedelic industry somewhere in the neighborhood north of 120 plus billion a year, and that means it's gonna attract a lot of extractive capitalists, which is the nature of the business. So 
you know, we're going to have a lot of ranging conversations here, but before we get started, let's start with some definitions and set some ground rules. So I want to start with Rebecca and, and what is the definition of psychedelic? What does psychedelic mean? Is it a drug? Is it not a drug? What is it? Yeah, so um, I, I agree that it's important for us all to start with a common grounding and not to assume knowledge in this room, although I know there are many people much more knowledgeable than me here. Um, I, I came up with a list of definitions, uh, which are, are my definitions. I would define a psychedelic as a chemical compound that produces changes in cognition and perception, or what might be known as an expanded or non-ordinary state of consciousness in a human. So do we, should we, Izzy, should we call these drugs? Should we call them medicines? I'm not gonna go into like a 500 year history, 500 year history of the construction of the word drug today, but um, the truth is to kind of like what you were saying, Rebecca, there are a lot of ways you can characterize that particular effect, the thing that happens in the mind when you ingest a thing. Um, and the thing that I think is specific about psychedelics, because a lot of substances affect the mind in a lot of different ways, but I think you know, some people narrowly define the psychedelic as things that affect the 5-HT2A receptor of the brain, things that have a particular effect on the dopamine or their serotonin system within the brain. Um, what we call them, I think, depends on the context in which we're talking about them. A lot of people who utilize psychedelics in their own personal practice call them medicine, and a lot of the time you'll hear in indigenous traditional practices also use of the word medicine. Now, when we kind of confront the American healthcare institution and say, well, this is medicine, while the U.S. institution has its own definition of medication, its own way of figuring out how medicine is used and shared and so on, it kind of forces us to get a little bit more creative about like what we actually call it. So I also, I tend to call them substances. Some are molecules, some are plants, sometimes they are medicine, sometimes the same substance that's used as a medicine is not a medicine. So even though I think this conversation, do we call them psychedelics? Do we call them entheogens? Is it a medicine? Like those things I think are gonna be ongoing conversations. I just use the word psychedelic compound and like you know, switch it up depending on who's, real, who's listening and who needs to hear what, so. Is that, does that work for you, Jim? It, it does, sometimes. Um, I'm, I'm a member of the Sacred Garden community and in that sort of spiritual religious context, we, 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 we call them sacraments. And uh, um, so it, it just depends on the community. You know, medicine is a great word for some people in my context, because of the places I've worked, that term invites a sort of medical hierarchy into the picture, which is problematic. Mm -hmm. So I, I tend just personally to stay away from that term. Okay. Okay. What I've heard is that people, when they talk about psychedelics, they talk about classics. What, what does classic psychedelic mean versus what's not a classic? What, what are some of the substances or compounds, as you say, that are, um, that would be defined as classics. Rebecca? Yeah, so I, I think of them as those well-known and fairly well-studied psychedelic compounds that have been used in many cases for decades, if not thousands of years, um, often as a sacrament, as Jim mentioned, by indigenous communities. Um, but examples would be LSD, um, also known as acid, MDMA, psilocybin, mescaline, um, which is the active ingredient in peyote and uh, the San Pedro cactuses, and is used by, as a sacrament by many indigenous peoples in the Americas. Uh, DMT, which is the active ingredient in ayahuasca, which is um, a psychedelic brew that is used by indigenous communities in South America. 5-MeO-DMT, um, which is commonly known as the toad because it occurs in toad venom, the Sonoran Desert toad. Um, and one thing that I think is important to understand about many of these classic psychedelics, um, although LSD and MDMA are synthetic, the rest are naturally occurring. And these naturally occurring sources of psychedelics are extremely overused right now um, because of the demand for uh, psychedelic experiences. Um, and so many of them are ecologically threatened um, and their conservation status is of great concern to the community. Um, Izzy, and we, 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 
we talk, I think this, uh, Rebecca brings up a very, very good point about the overuse of, of psychedelics, especially the, the naturally occurring uh, growing substances, which take like a long time to grow sometimes. And so we, we talk about the synthetic version of, of, uh, of psychedelics, and that's, that's why they exist. So why do people, you know, we know what, they, what it can serve. Like we, we know that for mental health benefits. So why do people use it recreationally or in other, other, other types of cases than trying to do this? So I'm gonna deconstruct that a bit because while it is true that in current today's media landscape, what people know the most about is the mental health benefits. That's where the research is, that's where like the investments are, that's where the future seems to be. But actually, um, as we know a number of these psychedelics have been used throughout history and those haven't always been in the context of mental health per se. So I would say to the kind of the point you were also making earlier, the other major category of use prior to kind of like the West, you could say stumbling upon psychedelics um, with the publishing of the Life magazine article in 1955 when Gordon Wasson got, stole, exploited, depending on who you ask, information from Maria Sabina in Mexico in the 50s to get that article published, Magic Mushrooms, 1955, suddenly the psychedelic revolution has begun in the uh, first part or like the middle part of this last century. So that context was kind of a combination. It wasn't necessarily like, oh, these psychedelics are gonna help our mental health needs at the time. They're like, oh, there's this new category of substances that have some sort of effect. Is it spiritual? Is it mystical? is all of these things. It was over the course of the 60s and 70s that kind of that definition of psychedelics as having maybe some sort of specific mental health benefit for alcoholism, for depression, for couples therapy, for these things started to emerge. And as we all know, those effects did not stay within clinics. They didn't stay within research environments. It was notorious and we all now know what happened when those psychedelics kind of escaped that environment. So why do people do psychedelics recreationally? Well, because it can be really fun, but they can also be really risky. And I think the combination of like how Western culture, American culture in particular, kind of contacted the substances um, was occurring also in a time of tremendous social and political turmoil and change. And it just so happens that psychedelics are highly effective tools for helping people navigate and deconstruct major symptoms and systems of social change. So those things kind of like happened perfectly at the same time and it, was, it wasn't until the early, late 60s, early 70s that the crackdown kind of started to happen. Yeah, so, so Jim, yeah, let's, let's talk a little bit about that because going down like what happened in, in, the, in the 60s, in you know, 50s and 60s and early 70s and how do we go from what happened there to where we are today in the renaissance that we're in? Well, part of what happened is that um, these were put, taken out of the hands in some ways of, of the average person, out of the sort of common sense of practice and, and shared sacrament, and taken under first the medical, uh, medical supervision, the medical world. The, the clinic that I trained in, uh, the Mental Research Institute in Palo Alto, was actually one of the early research sites funded by NIH to study psilocybin and LSD. And, um, and then, and in terms of the mental health world, there, there was a lot of cool work being done. But it took us away from the most common reason that people really use psychedelics, um, which is just to become better people. I mean, the excitement around psychedelics is that these help us not necessarily with pathology, although that, that's an interest of mind, um, or emotional distress. These help us become who we want to be. They help us get unstuck. That's been the connection, the attachment for thousands of years. And when there is healthy access, that's mostly how they're used. So. In terms of, of uh, what happened in the 60s, the, I think, unfortunate connection between politics and, and the anti-war movement and so on, and I, I think Re Rebecca and uh, Izzy might be, even be able to say more about how this happened, but 
at the Mental Research Institute, suddenly our legal supply of psychedelics dried up. Um, eventually it became illegal to, to do therapy with people. And instead of being tools of healing, all of a sudden they were viewed as being some sort of variation um, of, of heroin or something of that sort. You know, just because I am a lawyer in the room, the, the knowledge I can share there is it's, uh, it was the Controlled Substances Act of 1970, which is a gift of the Nixon administration, um, uh, made the possession um, and study of these uh, compounds uh, highly regulated, or in fact, uh, illegal um, for many, many years. So um, just so you know a little bit about that, I think it's important to, to ground us. The Controlled Substances Act is um, enforced by the federal FDA and DEA, or the Drug Enforcement Agency. And there are uh, sort of five categories that a drug can fall in based on what the federal government thinks is the potential medical usefulness and, conversely, uh, potential for abuse of a particular compound. So all the classic psychedelics that I named earlier are considered Schedule One, which means they have no accepted medical use according to the federal government, um, and a, according to, again, the government, a high potential for abuse. So um, the, the consequence of, of that is at DEA sets production quotas, strict production quotas, and has really rigorous licensing procedures for anyone who wants to study these compounds. Um, and for many years, it was basically not possible to, to study them. Yeah, and just add one more piece to that. One thing I like to remind people of when we're talking about the war on drugs, what happened during the Nixon era, and so on, is that while it's really hard to imagine, at least for me, someone who was born after the Controlled Substances Act of 1970, um, the possibility that this is not just the way things are, that prohibition is not just the status quo. And I really like to remind people when we talk about this history that prohibition is actually an exception to the rule. We've had first American prohibition and global prohibition for the last 52, you know, arguably the UN, the global processes to start the prohibition mechanism started in the late 1800s, early 1900s. We're talking about maybe 100 years. Um, which, is a, which is a tiny, tiny sliver of the total amount of time that people have been working with a number of these substances. So I think, especially when we're thinking about like what it means to be transitioning into a post-prohibition world, which is a little bit of the conversation we're having today, at least as it relates to psychedelics, it's helpful to remember that like we've done it before. Now, things have definitely changed since 1890, as far as I can tell. But that doesn't mean that we have to assume or take for granted that like prohibition is the only thing that's ever been or the only way that things have ever, ever operated. Because now as we start to imagine what kind of things look like outside of that paradigm, it's important to start thinking, okay, wait, we, we can do this. We can figure out an alternative system. And I think that's super important. Another thing that I want to mention is just as a matter of harm reduction. Um, is that it's not just federal law that you have to worry about, it's also state and often local law that may prohibit the possession or use of these substances. Um, but something also to understand is that in this country, federal law is supreme. So even if a state were to make the possession of these substances either decriminal or legal, and we can talk about the difference between those two words uh, in a minute, um, that doesn't mean that it automatically means you can legally possess it as a federal matter. So for example, in California, California has authorized the sale of cannabis under certain regulatory uh, procedures. It's still a federal crime. Um, the federal government has generally taken a position of non-prosecution in California, but it's in this gray area. Um, so something to remember, especially if you ever find yourself on federal land. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah we're seeing a lot of activity uh, regarding decriminalization in, in many states, Oregon, Oregon basically. Uh, I, don't know if, I don't know if the term is they legalize it or decriminalize it. They did both, so they, 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 they've done both. Um, and, and yeah, let's talk about the difference between decriminalization and legalization. And I wanna, and I put, I wanna frame this in the context of, of my own therapist who, who, um, who said, you know, while she's practicing underground, she's totally cool with it being decriminalized because she wants to be able to be safe in, in her practice, but she's really ambivalent about legalization. Um, so can you, can you elaborate on that, Izzy? Let's start with you. So there's a couple of things that are worth fleshing out here with respect to the difference between the two. So decriminalization is usually defined pretty straightforwardly as the reduction or elimination of criminal penalties related to an activity. 
I add the reduction part because some people call decriminalization, you know, you can leave civil fines, you can have other kinds of interdiction processes, but maybe there isn't a criminal element. And you see a lot of places around the world where drugs uh, in general have been decriminalized where the actual possession or use, for example, um, doesn't necessarily carry criminal penalties. But the reason your therapist might be more ambivalent about legalization is because generally speaking, legalization is the term used to describe when the um, the, a regulatory system cognizes like the entire existence of a process. So for example, the actual manufacture, sale, distribution. In other words, legalization by some is entrance into a market. My friend cynically calls it merely permission to commodify, which I think in a place like the United States is not that inaccurate. So legalization is often described as like the, the full, um, you could say like the full spectrum access to something from the point of creation to the point of consumption. I could see a reality where you have some sort of like decriminalization that looks at that whole thing, but usually when people talk about decriminalization, they're just talking about the endpoints, the use and the possession. Um, and one example that might be helpful for folks is if you look at cannabis, um, which I think we'll probably come back to a lot in this talk, just as an example, you see where there is a legal frame for the licensed production, sale, distribution of cannabis. But if you are a grower or a distributor that falls outside of that licensed frame, while the cannabis that a person might be possessing or growing at home is decriminalized, a person who grows a bunch of plants in their home without a license can't just go and sell it on the street or sell it in a dispensary. They have to have a license to do that. So that creates some tensions between, well, how do we actually make, create a just system where people actually do have permission to engage with a substance or with the creation of it or so on in a way that doesn't necessarily force them to have the super high barrier to entries. And we won't go into it so much today, but if you look at the news now, there's a lot of conversation in California about the regulation of cannabis, what it means when you have a tax burden, what it means when you have an industry that's quite a bit more expensive than the under underground does that actually work to you know end illegal sales in the way that we were promised years ago? Yeah. That's kind of an open. I question. mean, that's uh, Rebecca. I think you wanted to add a little bit more on onto this context of because that, I want to frame it in the conversation just Izzy just talked about, which is, you know, we think that the legalization is somehow you know opening up this whole market and somehow it's going to be like beneficial to the people in the indigenous community and broadly in general. But as we've seen from the cannabis industry, like, you know, we've got mo monopolies and oligopolies like, you know, cornering the market and it's very expensive for the small grower to basically now survive. And, you know, there was a women's in cannabis conference that just happened uh, late last year and they were complaining about it as small businesses that they can't, you know, they can't really make it so difficult with the regulations. Yeah, so I mean, I think there are a lot of different ways that legalization could play out, a lot of different ways, as you pointed out, that even decrim could play out. Um, but I share the concern that legalization, um, you know, could both lead to a really extractive model and also I, I worry about the consumers, right? I, psychedelics are really powerful substances. Um, I, my personal opinion is that they are much more powerful and in some ways riskier and more dangerous than cannabis, although even cannabis, I think, Sometimes people um, don't take it seriously enough. And so I think a fear I have is if you are able to just buy psilocybin at a gas station, um, that that may be a recipe for harm. Um, and so I think we need to be really careful um, when we think about how we want to have people have access and, and to ensure that people are safe. I don't know that necessarily regulation is always the answer. I am a lawyer, so I am generally pro-regulation, you know, just to, you know, as a matter of uh, career security. But um, <laughs> uh, no, I, I do think that regulation generally, if, if, it is, if it is done responsibly, thoughtfully, and by regulators who care about their constituents, um, I, I do think it is helpful. So I think there are gonna be a lot of really interesting conversations that happen in this field as we decide what we want the future of psychedelics to look like. Yeah, what, what, what do you think, Jim, is the future of psychedelics going to look like? Well, I, I think that, uh, and this is actually a really important question from an investment perspective also, because I think one of the problems with the big pharma model that some people are trying to apply to psychedelics is that it's, it just doesn't work. The, just as, as medical marijuana sort of led and the, the way for 
cannabis legalization, therapy psychedelics, uh, facilitator psychedelics are going to lead the way in the psychedelic industry. In this country, without even counting the number of facilitators, there's somewhere between 500 and 600,000 licensed or certified therapists. Um, there's only about 25,000 psychiatrists. So if you're making prescription medicines, you're only selling to that 25,000. Mimosa Therapeutics and, and similar companies that are, are looking to um, the broader market of practitioners, of, of therapists, of, of spiritual communities, we want the 100%, we don't want the 5%. And so part of what this is gonna look like is a world where um, healers, practitioners are, are really, I think, in the, in the next couple decades, gonna lead the way. Yeah, this, this is uh, one of the things that, Rebecca, you mentioned, it's like the safety of these cycles. These are very, very powerful substances. And, you know, when, when people come to me and ask me, like, you know, to think about these, I always, I always tell them, like, while recreation is fine, always do it with a trained, experienced facilitator. Um, and also do it with respect and reverence uh, for the medicine because of the, the culture where it came from. Um, yeah, you know, there's an evolution typically in the way people use psychedelics. So high school or college, it's about fun. <laughs> These are, for most of us, party drugs. I, I did my undergraduate work at Johns Hopkins, which was even then like ground zero for all sorts of traditional and drugs and shogun compounds. And, uh, um, and people who use them for fun like that tend not to continue with them. Yeah. It tends to be something you did in college. If you start to think of them as part of your, your journey in life, your growth, if they are a tool for becoming better pe people, if, if they are an aid to helping the deepest pains and traumas in your life, you will probably use them at least episodically through your whole life. They become essential tools for you to stay true to who you are and for you to grow in the direction you want to grow. Yeah, I definitely, I definitely think it sort of reveals your true self if you are keen to discover your true self. But I worry that, that people who want to just experiment, um, and I worry about the safety of, of the medicines or the drugs that are available because, and then I'm also conflicted about in order to make the substances safe, we have this heavy regulatory burden which makes it expensive and not accessible to the broadest number of people. What do we, what do we as the community or people that work in the space do something about it, Rebecca? Yeah, so I'm excited um, about what we're doing at, at Journey Collab, if I can give us a quick plug. Um, so we put 10% of our founding equity in um, a perpetual purpose trust which basically means it's irrevocable, we can't take it back, um, that is designed to share any value created by the company with the indigenous groups that have stewarded these medicines for all of us, um, with therapists that are providing care who are gonna be a huge part of this ecosystem, with groups working on the conservation of naturally occurring psychedelics, which are so threatened right now, um, and groups working uh, to increase equitable access to mental health care services, particularly for underserved uh, populations. So I think that's a super important goal. It's not just a promise of future profits. It's actual shareholder equity. It's ownership in our company. Um, and we see this as part of our duty of reciprocity, um, particularly with indigenous groups, but really with our community as a whole, giving back. Um, and I think that, you know, at my hope is that that's gonna become more of an industry standard. Of course, there's more than one way to skin a cat and different people will come up, different companies will come up with different solutions. But I really hope um, that there is a shared goal of making sure that we don't repeat the mistakes of previous industries. Um, 
and that we don't just you know, flee to the obvious extractive model. We really, um, if we believe that these compounds have the potential to change the world for the better, then you know, that should be part of our mission as well. Yeah. I have to say, I think the most responsible use of psychedelics that I've seen has been within spiritual contexts, within spiritual communities that exist over time, that have responsibility and continuity, and that really care for each other and, and care for the experience and the healing that psychedelics bring. I'm sorry, Izzy, you were? Yeah, good point. Um, I'll say a couple of things that are related to the question that you just asked, Neil. So first off, um, I think that both of you are totally right in the sense that I think that psychedelics can be used responsibly and appropriately, both in medical settings as well as, well as spiritual settings. And I understand your fear, and also I like to remind people that pretty much everybody that's used a psychedelic at this point in time did it in some sort of underground context. They did it at a festival, they did it with a friend, they did it on a campus, they did it whoever, wherever, whatever. Like, so yes, it's true that they come with risks and also there's just the reality that under prohibition, there's like no way for anyone to have any sort of control over how that works besides the kind of natural uh, waterline adjustment of the underground, which is like when things get really bad, people might like put up a website that says, don't go to this guy because he's dangerous. So I'm, I'm definitely a yes and kind of person. I think it's really important that we decriminalize the personal use and possession of substances just because criminalization of any kind is a totally ineffective way to prevent people from doing anything. What happens when someone tells you not to do something? I mean, it's just, we all know it and we all know that that's just how it's worked. It's how it's worked with drugs. It's how it's worked with everything else. So there has to be another way to do it. It doesn't help that at least people in my generation had to deal with D.A.R.E. where we had like, joints with big googly eyes being like, hey guys, don't mess with us. Like there's this wild kind of paradigm where we think that we can just tell people not to do something and then they won't do it. So I'm a really big proponent of decriminalization. I also think that there's a lot of different ways that we can look at legalization, both through medical frameworks as well as through spiritual care. One thing that I'll add here is um, just because you both shared one of the ways that MAPS has engaged with this, this question. MAPS has been around for about 36 years and started as a drug policy reform organization that's looking at a lot of different ways to kind of skin this cat, if you will. <laughs> um, and one is this commitment to decriminalization to broader drug policy reform, and another is by utilizing the FDA process, kind of like what Journey is doing, to um, essentially prove through the FDA's own mechanisms that there is a medical value to MDMA, best known as the active ingredient ecstasy. Um, to your point of earlier describing the Controlled Substances Act, if the FDA comes upon, based on its investigation, a decision or the recognition that there is a medical value, that drug no longer qualifies for Schedule One. So going through the FDA process, having it prove that there's some sort of medical value in the case of MAPS, what we're working on is MDMA assisted therapy for PTSD, it then no longer qualifies for Schedule One. it must be taking out according to federal law. Now that doesn't solve all the problems because criminalization does not entirely hinge on scheduling. There's drugs that are not Schedule One that are criminalized more than other Schedule One drugs. So for us, it's kind of this multi-tier approach where it's like, okay, yes, we want to figure out how do we medicalize the substance so it can enter that professionalized environment that you're talking about. But because of the reasons you said, that's totally not going to cover either all the mental health needs that we're talking about or the questions about justice and equity that are much broader than just how do we get something into the healthcare system, which right now, for those of you that aren't aware, in the United States is not exactly justly or equitably delivered. One thing I like to remind people, and this will be the last thing I say for now, is that unless and until there is an active attempt to counter the way and injustice and inequality that healthcare is delivered in the United States, then even the most exciting, inventive, um, effective tool for mental health interventions will still increase health disparities. It will increase health disparities even if we have a really amazing tool if we only use the healthcare mechanism. And so the reminder here is like, okay, can we actually create a paradigm in which medical use, spiritual use, personal use, decriminalized pharmacies, can those things coexist? That's, I think I was, I was um, called naively optimistic last year for believing that it's possible. Um, but I think that's part of the promise in the question. It's like, can we actually integrate any of these tools in a lot of different ways while also maintaining safety. 
I'll say one last thing about safety, which is, of course, it's true that there's risk to these substances. And I think we're in a period like of psychedelic social development where everyone's really excited. There's kind of this evangelism. And I, I want to be here to say that, and I don't think anyone here believes this, but psychedelics are not a silver bullet. And it's really important for people to remember that it's more than just the ingestion of the thing that changes your mind. It's definitely much more complex than that. I like to say that psychedelics kind of like take the brush off of the trailhead, but most of the walking you're doing up the, up the mountain is by yourself and maybe with your community, hopefully with your community. But I say that because it's, it, I don't want to kind of um, fall into the trap of, of desperation that we have because of the extreme need for mental health interventions to say, oh, these will work for everyone in every situation. I think yeah. that there's a way where we can say, okay, we need multiple points of entry. Say, I like to think of it as multiple on-ramps, multiple off-ramps. People should be able to have access if they want, and they should have support in getting off when they want. So, If I might, let me share with you um, a use of psychedelics that I think harms people. Psychedelics create a window for change. On a, if you're into the neurological explanation, they create a, a window for, for neurological plasticity, for you to disconnect old patterns, to reconnect new patterns. If you use this window for change, and you're intentional about that change, that's therapeutic. If you use the window, I think, in the way that often Prozac and traditional antidepressants have been given, merely as a Band-Aid for your crazy life. And if, you, if you're not conscious in trying to live the life that you want, you just make the rut deeper. You are actually um, wiring yourself to what's unhealthy instead of to the change want. You're more deeply embedding your bad habits rather than moving to the person you want to be. Yeah, that's, that's super important. One of, the, one of the things we talk about in the, in the psychedelic community, we always talk about it, even I was recently listening to uh, Dr. Carhart Harris, who, who moved one of the, did a lot of research in the Imperial College of London, and now was presenting at Stanford, and he said that it's not just the, the, the substance, the medicine itself, but it's, it's, the, it's the intention that you go in with, um, the, the mindset that you go in with, the setting, and the integration work, which is really the real work that happens after you've taken your medicine. Um, and that's, that's kind of the process. So uh, what somebody was saying was, like, if you're an asshole and you just take the medicine, you may be coming out a bigger asshole you know, when you come out of it. But if you don't go in with the intention to, to change who you are, or not even change who you are, but discover who you are, um, your true self, then the medicine by themselves isn't enough. But this raises a, a, a question, which is there's companies out there that want to shorten the, the experience. You know, they'll say, yeah, I got a, I got a clinic, um, you know, I want to shove as many people through this clinic as I possibly want. I'm going to cut the time down to an hour or 15 minutes or whatever, give you the high and get you out the door. You know, and maybe you do the integration and maybe don't. There was a recent article that said, okay, their, their, their particular brand didn't quite work so well for, for some patients. So how do, we, how do we sort of balance this in the economic models that we're going to have where you know, where people are not sort of run through this therapy mill is what I like to call it, just because we know a lot of people are gonna need this. Yeah, I mean, I can speak to that since we are developing a pharmaceutical product. Um, I, I think it has to be patient-centered. Um, we're developing a synthetic version of mescaline, which is one of the longer-acting classic psychedelics. For most people, the experience is 10 to 14 hours, uh, although I'm not a scientist, so please don't quote me on that. Um, and, uh, and that means that for those people, it's going to be um, probably an overnight experience. Um, and that means both the preparation work before and the integration afterward, it, you know, we're, we're working on our, our clinical protocol now, but it, it really has to be around the patient. And I think that the example you gave is one that's set up for failure, um, in part because, as, as Jim mentioned, we think the way that these substances work 
um, is that they open um, what we call a, a critical learning window, um, a critical relearning window. Um, and, and as Jim said, it creates neuroplasticity, an ability to change your patterns. And some of the animal models, which of course we take with a grain of salt because mice are not humans, but the animal models, animal models suggest that the longer the experience, the longer your critical opening is. So that means if you have a really short experience, you may not get the change you're looking for. Yeah, and I think, you know, just, just for transparency's sake, Mimosa Therapeutics is very focused on creating a, a, a palette of experiences for facilitators and therapists. So we want to um, be able to create different therapeutics for different experiences. And if people have a very brittle PTSD, it's one kind of journey. If they're depressed and low energy, it's a different one. If they have anxiety, it's a different one. Also, there are different styles that, that healers have. That's also part of what the ingredient of what goes into to choosing these. And um, the beauty of not being in the F, FDA pipeline is that you can create this palette, you can evolve it, you can speak to people, you can find out what they need and create a different therapeutic for them. That's the beauty of psychedelics. If you're stuck on the FDA Pipeline, and this is something I'm familiar with because I, I advise the, the Best Pharmaceuticals for Children Act and, and have been involved on the traditional side as well. Um, you're, you're stuck with whatever horse you start with, that's eight to 10 years you are stuck. And if you wanna make even a little change, at best it's gonna take five or six years to move that forward. Yeah, thank you, Jim. Uh, Izzy, 30 seconds and then we're gonna take some questions from the floor. This is gonna be like 45 seconds. Um, <laughs> So, yes to both the things that you said, and I'll add just a couple more things. Regarding the economic model, that itself could be like a three-hour conversation. Um, it's interesting the way that different organizations like Journey and others have kind of started to show up within the pharmaceutical space, like Mimosa has showed up, and I think that it's nice because it's good to have people on either side of me that are actually thinking about the economic implications of these big questions. The way the MAPS has chosen to operate is that it's a 501c3 nonprofit that's the whole owner of a public benefit corporation. The idea of creating some sort of hybrid model where the public benefit corporation is actually taking the horse through the FDA race, if you will, um, and then kind of reincorporating those profits into a public service kind of outcome, focusing on education, on harm reduction, on policy reform, and ending the drug war, and so on. Um, but the thing that I just want to mention really briefly is that part of the point that you're making around timing is specifically that the cost of the drug, if you look at the FDA protocols that are coming out, the cost of the drug is not really where the cost is going to be. It's in the hours of care associated, the preparation, the time where a person's holding space for the person and then afterward. So I just wanna throw in the factor of insurance and that is the plus of working within an FDA approved system where like we're trying to not just get an FDA approved drug but also see if there's a way to get the 50 something hours covered so that there actually isn't a cost to, to the patient. Of course that only works insofar as people are covered by insurance which as we know is again, not the entire country. So the conversation about how we do that in a place like Europe is very different from how we do it in a place like here. Yeah, thank you. We, we, could, we could go on for a long time and each of these topics that we could take down, but I wanna give some time to the people, to the audience to ask questions. So, Tony? Hello, y'all. I just wanna hear some of you guys' two cents in regards to certification and the validity of that certification. I hold space, ceremonial space, and I feel like it's significant space but I'm not certified, so that, does that make me not a valid facilitator, nor able to be able to hold space significantly? So um, let, let me speak as someone who's spent decades in the clinical training space in, in the traditional and institutional sides of, of, of therapy. Um, I've contributed to sort of state exams for licensing, and there is no relationship between the quality of healing and license or certification or degree. Um, I was, I, I didn't want to believe those, that research and it, it took a lot of, of time to finally accept that that is actually the truth of it. 
it does, there, it, there is a difference between good healers and not so good healers. There's a big difference between people who take the process of healing seriously, who set out with the intention of becoming better, of learning from their, the people they work with, and of improving themselves. If you look at what actually makes for good therapists, licensed, degreed, whatever, um, conscious practice, con purposeful a collection of feedback, improvement of what you do, that makes people better. And unfortunately, those things have nothing to, to do with traditional certifications, licenses, and so on. If a certification means that you um, have been through the sort of ethical grounding if a certification means that you've learned tools for getting feedback, for becoming better, if it means that you have listened and learned from others around you and from traditions that are sometimes thousands of years old, that's great, but that's not what certification has been about. This is a complex topic, so I'm gonna, are we out of time? Perfect. I'm going to say a little bit more about the certification thing because it's a really important question and it's a very complicated one. Um, on, so there's two things. One, totally agree with what you're saying. And I'll tell a quick story, which is that when um, the MAPS was starting our phase three FDA trial uh, a couple of years ago, we were told by FDA that despite the fact that we had permission in phase two to have one person who was a licensed therapist, one person who was unlicensed, but who was in training, gone through some sort of training, um, that they actually asked us that the two facilitators who were operating in the MDMA-assisted therapy paradigm had to actually be MD-PhDs. There's not that many MD-PhDs in the United States. There's a fair amount of therapists, as you said earlier, but there's a very, very small number of MD-PhDs. So despite the fact that we had successfully done the trial safely with just a therapist and a co-therapist who was not licensed, FDA was asking us to increase those barriers to entry. We then went on a 22-month dispute resolution process with FDA to get them to rescind that requirement. We're successful at it, so now our phase three facilitators are just a licensed therapist and unlicensed therapist, which I think is better because of the point you made. The fact that you have a bunch of letters after your name does not make you a good facilitator by any means, and there's lots of people who don't have that specific type of certification or training that are also excellent space holders. The thing that I get tripped up with, and I come from a, from a lineage of people who are not certified by Western mechanisms. They work with indigenous people for decades. They have their own space holding training. The thing that I get tripped up with, and this is coming up a lot, I'm on the social equity subcommittee of the Oregon panel that's trying to figure out how to implement Measure 109, which is legalizing the psilocybin services program in the state of Oregon. And the question for me is accountability. Right now, if an underground therapist does something terrible, underground practitioner does something terrible, the way that we have to solve that problem is to put up a website and say, don't go to that guy or don't go to that person. So I'm curious about the different tiers you could have, not to say that we have to create super high barriers to entry to ensure that the person who's holding space has all these degrees, but I am worried about like the very real question of what happens when people are totally, totally outside of a system and thus totally unaccountable. I like to believe that our communities withhold us accountable, but I don't actually think that that's true. I think that many communities who deal with sexual abuse and violations of boundaries are f also full of people who themselves are highly traumatized and themselves are highly triggered by those actions. And I think what that means is that even if we don't necessarily create super higher barriers to entry for every single kind of care, that there does need to be something that allows us to hold some sort of accountability. And I say that, say that as someone who's really committed to like a non-carceral, non-oppressive approach to what accountability looks like. So I think that there are a lot of people, maybe like yourself, who don't, maybe don't need to have like the full spectrum training that a person who's brand new might need. And I think there's like probably some middle grounds here. I'm curious about like how do we, for state legal systems, how do we grandfather in people with other 
training. So how do we say, oh, you've actually been doing this work for 20 years or 15 years or 10 years. Like maybe you don't have to spend all this money to go through a whole system to get your thing, but maybe we wanna know who you are because maybe we should have a mechanism for the people who work with you to say like, hey, there needs to be some sort of oversight. Now I just also say that recognizing that board oversight does not solve the problem of accountability. And just because someone has a board reviewing them does not mean that they're going to be always doing good because people who have board accountability do problematic stuff all the time. But that is the thing that I get tripped up with. It's like, yes, you're absolutely right. We don't necessarily need to have all the letters, all of the training for everybody. Some people are more natural than others and some people have experience. But the question is then what happens when something goes wrong? That's my only, that's where I'm like, that's the question that I'm trying to figure out for myself as we kind of engage with this. Hey Jim, how are you? Rev here. Um, so cannabis is a $25 billion market in California and we assume that psilocybin is gonna be like, whew. so how do we avoid how do we avoid psilocybin from becoming big cannabis, being overregulated, overtaxed, and just no social equity? All the white guys are in charge. I mean, all the black guys are in jail. Like, how do we avoid all this from happening? Thank you. The first answer to your question is home grow. I think that for all of the plant-based substances, if there isn't a home grow mechanism that allows people to have um, to cultivate what they want in their homes and share with a the community, then we've done something wrong. I think it's really important that every single legalization mechanism of any kind includes home grow. Um, if I'm not mistaken, Washington, and there might be one other state that doesn't include home grow in its legal cannabis framework, but I think that's step one. Um, with respect to access to the medicine itself, we should never be criminalizing home grow. And I think that in a best case scenario, we're also creating points of entry for, there's a bill that's being discussed in Washington that created what they're calling micro-tier licenses, which I think is an interesting approach where individuals who want to engage like on a micro-economy status, whether it's farmers markets or trading with friends or community that they're permitted to do that, I like that because then it's not like either you can grow your own and share with friends or you have to have a multi-million dollar corporation. I think having a lot of points of entry is really important. Um, I think that it's really important that we expunge all criminal records related to any of these activities. And I think that we should actually have like a, we've, people have talked about this with cannabis, like a prison to industry pipeline. That's a little bit crude for me to like directly discuss in that sense, because it's a little more complicated. People don't just kind of come out of prison being able to do whatever. I think we need a lot of other resources that have nothing to do with the drug economy that are really needed around housing and training and so on. Um, but the other thing I'll just say, I actually would challenge the assertion that the psilocybin industry is gonna be bigger than cannabis. People don't use psilocybin the way that they use cannabis. People use, there are lots of people who use cannabis every day or nearly every day. There are not that many people who use psilocybin every day. And if they are, they're using very, very small doses. So I actually would challenge that whole framework. And unless you start bringing in the questions around like, what does the FDA approved kind of medical system looks like, but then you're not just charging for this psilocybin. Again, you're getting their value proposition out of like all of the time that the people are spending. And the people who are making that money are not the sponsors of the drug, it's the therapists. Like they're the ones who are capturing like 90% of that cost because it's the cost of their time. That, that, that benefit does not, does not necessarily go with the company. So with respect to social equity in this area in general, I'm gonna try not to soapbox, just give me like 45 seconds again. I'm, it's a big question that deserves a lot of time to be talked about. But I think that it's really important to remember that with cannabis, with a lot of other what we call dangerous or scary drugs, heroin, cocaine, methamphetamine, we have an identifiable large population of currently or recently incarcerated people who we can identify who are like, oh, you have been impacted by the war on drugs in this way, we need to get you into the industry. That's why there was so much focus in the early days of social equity of cannabis, getting people in the industry. That kind of evolved beyond just getting people into the industry because people realized, oh wait, the benefits of cannabis legalization ought not to be limited to people who uh, want to join the cannabis industry. People's livelihoods and families were torn apart. They might not want to get back in, they should still have the benefits. So that then changed the, can the social equity conversation in cannabis to look more at community reinvestment. How can the funds that come from this thing benefit communities in a lot of other ways, not just that they choose to participate. With psychedelics, almost there. With psychedelics, the harm of criminalization occurred a lot before 1970. There are a lot of people in, in prison who have been incarcerated for psychedelic-related crimes, but the number is a fraction related to the other drugs. 
The reason that's relevant is because what that means is that people from diasporic communities whose ancestries have worked with these psychedelics for, all, for, his, for a long time in history had their medicine, their substances, taken from them much, much earlier than the Controlled Substances Act of 1970. So we have the descendants of people, including in this room and all over, whose ancestors used the substances through colonization had that lineage severed. And now we have like American culture getting really excited about them over again. So when I think social equity with psychedelics, I'm not just thinking about getting people into the industry. I'm thinking of how does the windfall or the benefit of a psychedelic future actually impact all of these other questions about social justice, about housing, about education, about the environment. I think that it's really limited if our conception of social equity within psychedelics is we'll give you more psychedelics for cheaper. I think that we need to have a more visionary approach to that. So I like to think that social equity there means we're actually looking at like what are the underlying questions that are leading to the mental health crisis in the first place because the drugs are not going to get us out of that. Mm -hmm. Wow. <laughs> what, what an amazing conversation. We've just scratched the surface, people. Um, so before, before we go, I know um, I want to ask each of these panelists, like there's a lot more information to learn here. So what are the one or two takeaways that the audience should do. It could be people, it could be books, it could be a website, it could be something. What can they take away to learn more and take some action? Sure, so I mean, I, I think uh, a lot of people are probably already familiar with Michael Pollan's book, Books. Um, those are a good place to start. Um, if you are also looking for more education, Double Blind Magazine is a great resource. Um, if, and if you wanna do something, uh, if you care about any of the issues we talked about, I would really uh, encourage you to donate to many of the organizations that are doing great things in this area, including the Chakruna Institute, um, including the Indigenous Reciprocity Initiative. Um, and I can give you more information about those, uh, those groups, but there are a lot of really good um, organizations working on conservation, working on, on psychedelic policy. Um, you're in California. I would say pay attention to SB 519, a bill authored by Senator Scott Weiner that will be getting heard in the Assembly Health, or sorry, Assembly Appropriations Committee sometime later this spring. We've made it through the Senate. We made it through most of the Assembly, and it's in its like kind of last phase that would decriminalize the personal use of a number of psychedelics. It's worth following. We didn't even get to touch it today, but it's something just worth being aware of and tracking. And I'm going to second um, Bia Labate. I'm sorry, I'm going to call you out. Bia Labate here in the red. If you could raise your hand, Bia is the executive director of the Chakruna Institute, which really truly is one of the best resources on the internet for a lot of information about psychedelics. You should totally talk to her. There's a lot there. And of course, check out maps, maps.org. We've got a lot of information, a lot of things. I should have um, said not your own. And I'll be here. <laughs> and we'll, um, we'll, we'll be here for a bit to talk about it. So, so thanks so much for everyone's time and for everything tonight. Yeah, um, yeah you know, I, I was actually going to name the Shakruna website as, as one of my sort of moral compass anchors. Um, I follow very closely anything by Graham Pechnik, who's probably the, one of the leading intellectual property um, attorney in the psychedelic space, and someone who I think is really spiritually aligned with many of us who are, are um, sort of from the, the traditional psychedelic community. Um, you're, you know, there's a couple that you're going to mention that I also like uh, as well, so I don't want to steal that, that from you. But, Go for it. Um, gosh, trippingly.net um, is amazing, although, although actually for transparency, that's, that's the, uh, uh, John Turner is, is part, part of Mimosa, and that's, that's his website, and... Uh, yeah, it's excellent, excellent recommendations. Yeah, obviously I'm, I'm, I'm very much involved in, in getting yes on SB 519. So for me, that's, that's a plug. If you wanna get plugged into that, get plugged into Signal, which is where a lot of us in the psychedelic community actually live. And there's a yes on SB 519 Signal group. So that, that's a good place to start. Obviously Michael Pollan's book, especially if you're getting started, if you're curious um, you know, and you want to go from curious to figuring out whether or not you're ready. Uh, that's a good place to start. Uh, Trippingly.net's a good place to start. Um, uh, the Psychedelic Explorer's Guide, which is one of my favorite. I have it all the time, <laughs> and, and that's handy, so I use that. Uh, so these are, the, these are the, definitely the places to start, as well as all the recommendations that people have made. 
before I close, um, I also want to recognize the, the people um, in the psychedelic community who are doing ama amazing work. Uh, obviously, Bia Labate here from Shakruna, uh, but I also recognize Monica Cadena, who is, who is a sacred alchemist, I think is right, and then she's also in, in, uh, in collaboration with Duffy who, uh, for the SPORE organization out of Denver. There's two amazing people here. Tony, you asked the question, and, and Dejana, I think. Heal the Heroes, yeah, amazing work uh, those people are doing. So, you know, give to them, donate to them. Uh, it, it, it'd be super, super awesome. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna close out um, with a couple of thoughts. You know, we in Silicon Valley always talk about our tech companies changing the world. You know, uh, to change the world, we need to change our minds. I think Michael Pollan has a good book to start with how to do that. Okay. But I'm going to quote from the um, Irish playwright, George Bernard Shaw, who said, those who cannot change their minds cannot change anything. If you are interested, in this space, if you want to be part of a community, if you are, want to lend your talent, whether you're software engineers, product managers, designers, community builders, right? Um, and you're interested in, in the marriage of, of you know, crypto and psychedelics or just psychedelics, you know, Come, come talk to me and, and, and you know, let, let's get you engaged and, and, and plugged in. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for our next Conversations podcast coming soon. If you have a story that needs to be shared, we'd love to hear from you. For more information on Shack 15 and our community, you can email info at shack15.com, connect with us on Instagram, or visit our website at shack15.com dot com.